Welcome to Then and Now with Ed Stevens, President of the International Preterist Association. Then and Now is a weekly podcast designed to explore past fulfillment of Bible prophecy in order to equip us for guiding the church in its ongoing reform. And now, with today's message, here's Ed Stevens. Thanks for joining me here on another episode of Then and Now, where we study the past to help us understand the present and to help shape a better future. Let's pray before we begin. Heavenly Father, our Creator, Redeemer, and Sustainer throughout all ages of your eternal kingdom, we echo the praise and thanksgiving of the psalmist who said, Had it not been the Lord who was on our side when men rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us alive. Blessed be your holy name. We are chasers after your truth. Help us not to be afraid of following your truth wherever it leads and no matter what others may do against us. Help us here to understand the biblical and historical truth so that we can share it with others and all nations will be blessed by your great salvation. We pray this in the name of our precious Redeemer, Jesus. Amen. Last session, we looked at how one of the Zealot leaders, Menachem in particular, led his Zealot force to Masada and ousted the Roman garrison there, and then plundered all their armaments, and then returned triumphantly to Jerusalem as if he was a king. One of the other priestly Zealot leaders, Eleazar ben Ananias, who already had control of the temple, stopped the sacrifices of Caesar and all Gentiles. His father, Ananias ben Nadibus, was killed by Menachem's forces, just as Apostle Paul had predicted eight years earlier. Eleazar avenged his father's death by killing Menachem and his bodyguard troops. There was also a horrible massacre of all the Jewish inhabitants in Caesarea, which provoked many more of the moderate Jews to join the rebellion. This time we're going to be looking at the early months of the rebellion, August through December of 66 AD. We will see how the Zealots quickly organized their government and prepared for the Roman attack. The Roman legate in Antioch, Cestius Gallus, did not waste any time responding to the rebellion, but his attack on Jerusalem was mismanaged from start to finish. His failure to squash the rebellion only strengthened and emboldened the Zealot cause and prolonged the war beyond what it would have been otherwise. Well, many Christians, Jews, and even secular historians have wondered not only why the Jews went to war in the first place, but more especially why they pursued it with such vigor and to such a bitter end, including the loss of their temple, city of Jerusalem, and the right to even continue dwelling in the land. Well, Josephus answers that question. He gives a lot more than just eight different reasons for it, but we're going to look at eight major reasons why they pursued the war so long that they lost everything. Number one, in the reasons that Josephus provides for their daring attempt to throw off the Roman yoke, he says is the zealot principle, which he calls the fourth philosophy. 
And the Zealots believed that freedom from taxation and from paying tribute to any foreign government was worth every risk in order to avoid doing that, and that God was therefore totally on their side no matter what they did. The founder of this fourth philosophy was Judas of Galilee back in A.D. 6, which would be 60 years before this revolt. The second reason that Josephus gives for them pursuing the war with such vigor is the idea that there were false prophets stirred up to teach the people that this was the time that God would establish his universal reign over all nations. And so they believed the prophets and therefore pursued the war. The third reason Josephus gives is that the signs and wonders and omens that they saw only strengthened their resolve that this was, in fact, the time when God would enable them to break free from Rome and set up his eternal kingdom. Number four was their unequivocal belief that God was on their side. John of Giscala said that he could never fear capture of their city by the Romans because the city belonged to God. The number fifth reason that Josephus gives is the class conflict between the rich and poor, as well as political and economic competition that was going on between the various rival factions in the priesthood, the rabbis, and the aristocracy. Number six, ethnic hatred between the Jews and the other Greco-Syrian inhabitants of Palestine. Number seven, the corruption and evil mismanagement of affairs by the Roman procurators, especially the last two under Albinus and Florus. But the biggest reason of all, number eight, was their belief that about that time, one from their country would become ruler of the habitable world, Josephus tells us in the Wars, Book 6, Sections 312 through 315. So it wasn't just independence from Rome that they wanted. That wasn't enough to motivate them to hang in there throughout that bitter war and lose everything. Josephus says that there was a certain prophecy about a world ruler who was expected to appear at that time and take over rulership of the whole world. And so they were doing this, not just to get their freedom and and independence from Rome, but in order to establish the eternal kingdom of God, which they believed was a fleshly and physical kingdom on earth under a fleshly descendant of King David. And we're going to talk more about that because that's a very significant uh, admission by Josephus in regard to the reasoning behind their persistence in pursuing this war. Gary Goldberg, who manages the Josephus website at josephus.org, commented on all this uh, reasons for the revolt and said this, This manifestly was understood as a prophecy of a Messiah, one appointed by the Lord to do his work on earth. But was it a prophecy of the Messiah, the one who would herald the passing of this world and the beginning of a world to come? All we can safely say from Josephus' evidence is that the revolutionaries expected divine assistance and probably the signs and miracles to vindicate them and to embolden them in freeing their country and even taking command of the Roman Empire. 
The oracle that we quoted here from Josephus in Wars Book 6 said to them nothing less than the imminent arrival of a Jewish empire was about to replace the Roman Empire. This is somewhat different from supposing the revolutionaries had eschatological expectations akin to the early Christians. Now, Gary Goldberg uh, hedges his bets on that one because we'll see shortly that there were a group of Christians, or at least supposed Christians, who took that physical, literal kingdom idea, and so they based that idea on the eschatological prophecies as well. And so Gary Goldberg is trying to minimize the damage here for his Jewish cause by saying that, oh, there's nothing to do with eschatological expectations here. It was just simply their wishful thinking. Gary Goldberg goes on to say, part of the interpretation on this point hinges on the term used for habitable world. Notice Josephus said that about this time, one from their country would become ruler of the habitable world. So Gary Goldberg on the Josephus.org website says that part of the interpretation on this point hinges on the term used for habitable world. This word usually means the Greco-Roman world, but it could also indeed signify the whole earth. The latter would be a magical happening requiring some new cosmic order. Of significance to Josephus may have been that the term is used by Cyrus in 1 Esdras 2 verse 3 in the Septuagint translation to refer to his own kingdom. And Cyrus is the only foreign ruler to be called a Messiah, Christ in the Greek of the Septuagint. It was a commonplace to reread passages about Cyrus as referring to the contemporary emperor of Rome. So this may have been the basis for Josephus' interpretation of this applying to Vespasian rather than to uh, eschatological expectations of a messianic ruler. Gary says, We do not know what oracle Josephus is citing here, although it seems to be one of the Sibylline oracles held at Rome, since it is also mentioned by the Roman historians Tacitus and Suetonius. And all this is found on Josephus' website. If you look under their introduction to the war as well as their chronology of the war, the reference for it, or actually the link for it, is in our lesson outline. So if you get the lesson outline, you'll have the link where Gary Goldberg discusses this. Well, I want to make some comments about all these things that Josephus has said and Gary Goldberg has analyzed for us. Did you notice that the Zealots believed that this very time, 66 AD, was the time when God would set up a political ruler in Jerusalem who would rule over the whole world? Very significant fact. This was the very ideology that had caused the Jews to reject Jesus 40 years earlier. They wanted a fleshly descendant of David ruling on a physical throne from earthly Jerusalem. They did not want God or Jesus to be their spiritual king. It was this same lust for an earthly king that originally made Israel reject God's rulership over them and set up King Saul. It was this same earthly kingdom concept which motivated the Judaizers, the Zealots, 
the Ebionites, and even the premillennial dispensationalists today. The destruction of Jerusalem was a very effective indication from God on what he thought about that whole idea of a physical king and kingdom in Jerusalem. Apostle Paul taught that Christ Jesus was the true spiritual ruler of the world and that he was already putting his enemies down who did not want him to rule over them. Jesus was about to come and put down the rest of God's enemies and then give the kingdom back to God to whom it belongs, as we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 25-28. through 28. Indeed, this very prophecy that the zealots used to undergird their rebellion referred instead to the true Messiah, Jesus, who did establish his eternal kingdom over the whole world at that very time but it was not the kind of a kingdom that the Jews expected and wanted. It's extremely revealing that one of the four doctrinal errors of the Ebionites in Pella after the war was this very issue. They believed that a fleshly descendant of David, which would be Jesus or one of his relatives, would set up a physical throne in Jerusalem and rule the world. They were making the same mistake that the Jews did. Furthermore, it seems that Papias, a very early 2nd century Christian writer, was in agreement with this physical kingdom idea, which suggests that he may have been influenced by one of the Ebionite or Nazarene sects there in Palestine or Syria. Well, at this time in August and September of 66 A.D., Agrippa was in Antioch, discussing the situation with Cestius Gallus, who was already assembling his troops to make an attack on the Jews there in Palestine. And so he comes along with Agrippa to Palestine. He marches his troops down to Ptolemais, which is right there by the valley of Megiddo, Armageddon, as we would say. He took the 12th legion from Antioch along with Agrippa's troops and other auxiliaries and marched to Ptolemais. His troops supposedly numbered more than 35,000, according to Josephus. After reaching Ptolemais, supposedly on October the 17th in 66 AD, Cestius sent a detachment to burn and plunder the nearby city of Kabulon, which is Zebulun in the Hebrew, and its surrounding villages in Galilee. He lost 2,000 soldiers there to a Jewish counterattack. A few days later, he went to Caesarea, while his army went down to Joppa, and 8,400 Jewish zealots were killed in that battle there at Joppa, as well as in the nearby toparchy of Nabartine, where his soldiers killed, plundered, and burned their fortifications as well. Then he sent his forces back into Galilee. Here in late October of 66 must have been the time that the zealots minted some new coins just before the Feast of Booths in AD 66, at least according to Greats, who wrote The Popular History of the Jews, published back in 1937. In volume two of his work, he says, that uh, this was the most likely time when the rebels began minting their own coins to replace the Roman coinage that had images of Caesar on them. 
Gessius Florus had taken 17 talents of temple gold, and then he attempted to get the rest of the gold out of the temple, but failed. Agrippa made them pay another 40 talents soon after that to complete their tax obligations. Supplies of imageless coins with which to buy sacrifices must have been running low at this time. And so it's no surprise that the rebels would have immediately begun to mint their own coins. The rebel priest under the command of Eleazar, Ben Ananias, would have wanted to replenish their supply of temple gold as soon as possible. Since they had just officially broke with Rome by refusing to accept the peace offering on Rome's behalf, it is logical that they would have no hesitancy in minting their own coins, at least for temple use, if not for general use as well in Judea and Israel. There are coins with the date year five on them, which would not have been possible if they only started minting coins in late December 66 after the defeat of Cestius. So this fifth year coinage implies that they reckoned the war to have begun in the late summer of 66 AD, probably around August or September, and they would have minted their coins shortly after that to commemorate that beginning of the war. They probably took the Roman coins and melted them down and re-stamped them. There were thick silver shekel and half-shekel coins labeled year one, year two, year three, year four, and year five, as we noted. Coins of the fourth and fifth years are extremely rare. They bear the legend, Jerusalem the Holy, and were the only coins used to pay the temple tax and purchase sacrifices. This had tremendous propaganda benefits for the revolt, in the same way it had during the Maccabean revolt previously. As we'll notice, they probably could not buy or sell anything in Israel without using these coins. They certainly could not buy or sell sacrifices at the temple without them. Well, here in the early November, November 2 through 9, the zealots assembled in Jerusalem during the festival of Sukkot, which is the Feast of Booths, to organize their government and prepare for Cestius' imminent attack. Cestius was already in Ptolemais at the time and was already beginning to launch his attack in areas around Galilee. And so they assembled in Jerusalem during the festival of booths to organize their government and to prepare for engaging Cestius' army. On November the 3rd, right while they were there in Jerusalem, Cestius moved his 12th legion into Galilee against the strongest fortress there named Sephorus which surprisingly accepted them peacefully. However, the zealots that were there had fled from the city to the hills and were pursued by the Romans and flushed out, and 2,000 of them were killed there in the nearby Asamon Mountains. Also during the Festival of Booths, on November the 4th and 5th, the 12th Legion returned to Caesarea and regrouped with the rest of their army, to march against Antipatris, where they dispersed the zealot forces there who were holding the tower of Aphek. When the rebels fled from there, he burned and plundered Antipatris and Aphek, and then moved on to Lydda. 
Arriving at Lydda, the city was virtually unguarded. Most of the inhabitants of the place, most of the men of the place especially, had gone up to Jerusalem for the Feast of Booths. On November the 7th, which is still during the time that they were in the Festival of Booths, Cestius moved toward Judea, through the pass at Beth Horon, and camped temporarily at Gabaon, or Gibeon, which was not far from Jerusalem. A large force of zealots who were at Jerusalem for the festival of Sukkot left Jerusalem and attacked Cestius at Gabaon, killing 515 of his troops while suffering only 22 casualties. Well, for the next three days, November 8 through 10, Cestius decided to retreat to Beth Horon temporarily to regroup. But the rear guard was attacked all along the way by Simon, son of Giora's forces. Simon captured a lot of their weapons and supplies. The rebels then placed their troops on the hills surrounding Bethorn to prevent Cestius from getting through the pass. Smart move. Well, while Cestius and Agrippa were camped at Gabaon for three days, Agrippa offered amnesty to the zealots if they would break off the attack and return their allegiance to Rome. But Agrippa's messengers were attacked, one of them was killed, and another wounded, and they were sent packing back to Agrippa. Well, that provoked Cestius and Agrippa to engage the rebels and chase them back to Jerusalem, where he set up camp on Mount Scopus for three days to collect food from the local villages and prepare for his attack on Jerusalem. So on November the 17th of 66 AD, Cestius Gallus began his attack on Jerusalem. He chased the rebels out of all the surrounding areas around Jerusalem and bottled them up inside the city. He camped at Mount Scopus for three days, which was north of the city beyond the third wall. He seized all the corn and food supplies from the surrounding villages, and then he entered through the third wall into the northern part of the city called Bezetha and burned it. Then he went up into the upper city with his forces where the rebel forces were camped. He stationed his troops at the wall of the upper city and camped near the royal palace. For the next four days, the moderates and pro-Roman Jewish leaders offered to let Cestius come into the upper city, but he hesitated, giving the rebels time to organize their defense and then remove those moderate leaders who had offered to let Cestius into the city. Some of the moderate leaders were killed, and the rest of them were chased out of there so that the zealots could then take control of the upper city walls from which they bombarded Cestius' forces with arrows and stones But uh, Cestius' forces were guarded by their shields so that they could continue their work of undermining that wall there in the upper city. They were digging underneath it to try to make the wall topple down. Well, after five days of fighting, on November the 22nd, just as his soldiers were about to topple the wall and set fire to the gate of the temple, Cestius disengaged his troops, and withdrew for some unknown reason. He was on the threshold of taking the city and could have done it if he had only pressed the attack at that very time because the rebels were not prepared to defend it at that particular location. 
Josephus said that Cestius could have put an end to the war that very day, but for some unknown reason, he withdrew and headed back towards Syria. Well, Cestius retreated to Scopus first on November the 23rd, and then the next day he went on toward Gabaon, being constantly attacked on his flanks and at the rear by rebel forces. The Zealot forces were able to capture most of his baggage and supplies. Cestius camped at Gabaon for two days to plan his next move. Then on November the 25th, Cestius headed toward the Bethhoron Pass, but he was hemmed in by the Zealot forces on the hills surrounding it. The only thing that saved him from total annihilation was nightfall. They left 400 men behind to make it appear as if they were still camped there while the rest of the force fled in the night. This occurred on the eighth day of Dias, which is the Hebrew month of Heshvan, uh, which would be November the 25th, A.D. 66. Well, when the Zealots discovered the trick the next morning, they quickly overpowered and killed the remaining 400 Roman soldiers and then pursued the Roman force, which was now camped at Antipatris. In their haste to flee, the Romans left behind most of their heavy weaponry, war engines, and supplies. The zealots plundered it all and went running and singing back to Jerusalem, believing this victory was a sign that God was going to deliver them from the Roman yoke. The Romans suffered heavy casualties on this retreat, 5,300 soldiers, including 480 cavalry. Josephus commented on this humiliating defeat of Cestius. He said, After this catastrophe had befallen Cestius, many of the distinguished Jews abandoned the city of Jerusalem like swimmers away from a sinking ship. And he said, This reverse of Cestius proved disastrous for our whole nation. For those who were bent on war were thereby still more emboldened, having once defeated the Romans. Now they hoped to continue victorious to the end. Two Roman historians also recorded this defeat of Cestius, uh, Tacitus in his Histories, uh, Book 5, talks about it, as well as Suetonius, in his book, The Twelve Caesars, in his chapter on Vespasian, section 4. As we noted, the peace-loving folks in the city of Jerusalem swam away from the city as from a ship when it was about to sink. The moderates knew that it was now only a matter of time before the Roman war engine would return in full force. They fled to the hills, Anyone who stayed in Jerusalem and Judea after this was begging for trouble. It was now evident to all that there was no way to avert a full-scale military response from Rome. However, more false prophets showed up on the scene and used this defeat of Cestius Gallus to gather more support for the doomed war effort. Both Josephus and Eusebius mention these false prophets who deceived the Jews into pursuing 
the war effort at this time. Josephus says in Wars, Book 6, Sections 286 through 288, Now there was then a great number of false prophets suborned by the tyrants to impose upon the people who denounced this to them that they should wait for deliverance from God. And this was in order to keep them from deserting and that they might be buoyed up above fear and care by such hopes. Now a man that is in adversity does easily comply with such promises, for when such a seducer makes him believe that he shall be delivered from those miseries which oppress him, then it is that the patient is full of hopes of such deliverance. Thus were the miserable people persuaded by these deceivers, and such as belied God himself, while they did not attend nor give credit to the signs that were so evident and did so plainly foretell their future desolation. But like men infatuated without either eyes to see or minds to consider, did not regard the denunciations that God had made to them. Eusebius also mentions these false prophets. He says, taking then the work of this author, Josephus, Read what he records in the sixth book of his history. His words are as follows. Thus were the miserable people won over at this time by the impostors, that is, the false messiahs and false prophets. But they did not give heed nor give credit to the visions and signs that foretold the approaching desolation. On the contrary, as if struck by lightning and as as if possessing neither eyes nor understanding, They slighted the proclamations of God. At the same time, Josephus tells us that there were more signs and omens which foretold their doom and destruction. The moderates were in mourning over what they saw coming. Josephus says, The moderate sort were exceedingly sad, and a great many there were who, out of the prospects they had of the calamities that were coming upon them, made great lamentations. There were also such omens observed as were understood to be forerunners of evil by such as loved peace, but were by those who kindled the war interpreted so as to suit their own inclinations. And the very state of the city, even before the Romans came against it, was that of a place doomed to destruction. Well, it was at this time after Cestius had been defeated that the Zealots began organizing the defense of the country. During the winter time, Cestius went packing back to Antioch to spend the winter, hoping that Nero would send some reinforcements so that he could re-engage the war in the spring. Over the winter time, the Zealots got together in Jerusalem to begin organizing their defense of the country. They sent emissaries to all the Jewish communities outside Palestine seeking reinforcements and supplies and support for their war effort. And some reinforcements did come from Adiabene and Babylon. And while they were there in Jerusalem over the winter time, they appointed ten commanders over the seven different regions of Palestine. And here's the seven territories. In Jerusalem, 
Joseph Ben-Gurion and Ananus II were selected as the two co-rulers over Jerusalem. Over Idumea, they selected three guys, Jesus Ben-Saphius, Eliezer Ben-Ananias, and Niger the Perean. And evidently, Niger the Perean was the one who actually did go to Idumea and oversee all the affairs there. Possibly Jesus Ben-Saphius also. Uh, but it's pretty clear to me from Hegesippus and Yosipon that Eliezer Ben-Ananias stayed there in Jerusalem and commanded his forces in the temple. The third area was Jericho, and it's in Barnes, right there close by. They selected Joseph ben Simon as the ruler over that area. Over Perea, which is across the Jordan, opposite Jericho, uh, they selected Manasseh. Then northwest Judea, which includes Thamna, Lydda, Joppa, and Emmaus, they selected John the Essene. And then northeast Judea, they selected John ben Matthias. And in the far north, including both Galilees and Gamla, they selected Josephus, the son of Matthias, along with a couple of other priests named Joazar and Judas, supposedly underneath him, according to Josephus, but uh, according to the intent of the council there in Jerusalem, uh, they were co-rulers of the Galilean area. So Josephus was sent to Galilee sometime over the winter, probably in December, to begin his war preparations there. He was only 29 years old at the time of his appointment to this position of command over the Galilean region. According to Greats, in his popular history of the Jews, uh, it was about this time that the Judean citizens were forbidden by the leadership there in Jerusalem to buy anything from the Gentiles. It's no surprise that Eliezer ben Ananias was directly involved in initiating and enforcing this prohibition. We might also note that in order to enforce such an order for the Jews not to buy anything from the Gentiles, the zealots would already have needed to have minted their own coinage with which to buy and sell in Judea. Notice what Greats has to say about this prohibition from buying from the Gentiles in his book of history. He says, After Cestius' defeat or flight, the animosity of the heathens against the Judeans became even more violent. They banded together and murdered their Judean neighbors, men, women, and children, without mercy. The Judean patriots retaliated on their heathen neighbors whenever possible. A desperate race war broke out between the Judeans and the heathen population of Palestine and the neighboring countries. Since all these nationalities, Romans, Greeks, Syrians, and even Alexandrians, made the emperor's cause their own, the ultra-zealots believed themselves justified in embracing all heathens in their hatred of Rome. The school of Shammai, therefore, promulgated a law which aimed at nothing short of a total separation 
or the erection of an insurmountable barrier between Judeans and heathens. Judeans were forbidden to learn the language of the heathens, to accept gifts from them for the temple, and even to buy wine, oil, bread, and other food from them. These decrees became known under the caption of 18 Things. Religious rigorism and political zealotism went hand in hand in that stirring period. The politically and religiously moderate Hillelites, however, were not in accord with these measures of separation. When the Synod was called together, the zealots lorded it with a high hand. Armed guards were stationed at the doors with instructions to make short shrift of the Hillelites. The Shammaiites succeeded in carrying their point by force. The meeting of the Synod took place in the residence of Eleazar ben Ananias, the leader of the Zealots. Great makes the point that this occurred after Cestius' defeat, but it could have occurred before that. He doesn't give any clear references here to prove that it was after Cestius' defeat. It could very easily have been before that. And was, we mentioned earlier in our lesson that the Jewish people were are forbidden to buy anything from the Gentiles uh, with those imageless coins that they minted specifically for buying and selling sacrifices in the temple. And so right along with that prohibition of using the temple gold and temple coinage for buying anything outside of Judea, uh, might have been this prohibition here, since it was done by Eliezer and his comrades there in the temple area. Greats also stated that this same Eliezer ben Ananias was the very one who initiated the war effort. He says here, Eliezer ben Ananias gave the first impetus to the mighty struggle from his Popular History of the Jews, Volume 2 page 195. Well, this confirms what we have seen already from Yosipon, Hegesippus, and Josephus in all of our other studies so far. All fingers point to Eliezer ben Ananias as the prime instigator of the rebellion. Well, after the Zealots had defeated Cestius' army and sent him packing, the Zealot forces then marched swiftly to Ascalon, down on the coast there, where the Romans had another garrison. It backfired on the Zealots. They were no match for the Roman footmen and horsemen there in Ascalon, and the Zealots suffered heavy losses, including two of their three main leaders, John the Essene and Silas of Babylon. The other Zealot leader, Niger the Perean, was assumed dead because he had been trapped in a burning tower in Bezidel, but they didn't know that he had jumped down from the tower into a subterranean cave and thus survived. There he was found alive three days later by the zealots and considered to have been providentially preserved to be their leader in the coming war effort. Well, after Cestius was defeated he immediately sent messengers to Nero to report the rebellion and ask for reinforcements. 
Nero was in Greece at that time with Vespasian as his bodyguard. As soon as Nero heard the bad news about Cestius' defeat, he dispatched Vespasian and Titus to settle the score. Next time we'll look at Vespasian and Titus' preparations for the war, how they accomplish that and get ready over the winter time to engage the Zealot forces in the spring. Well, that's going to just about wrap it up for this session. If any of our listeners have questions or comments about what we looked at here, don't hesitate to contact me. Thanks so much for listening. This has been Then and Now with Ed Stevens. We would love to hear from you. Send your email to preterist1 at preterist.org. Our website has many great articles, books, and audio-video resources. The address is www.preterist.org. This teaching ministry depends on your donations, and you share in all the good fruit that we produce. To make a donation or support monthly, simply go to our website, www.preterist.org, or call us at 814-368-6578. Join us again next time for Then and Now where we study the past to shape a better future.